boys and girls that are kindergarten through second grade for next year. You are dismissed to Children's Church if you want to go to Children's Church. Kindergarten through second grade starting this fall is that age group for Children's Church. This morning, we're going to begin a new series, a series that will carry us through approximately Labor Day, end of summer. We're going to walk through the book of Judges. It's not a book that I've preached through. It's a book I've preached selectively from previously. It may be a book that you've studied extensively, but my guess is that you've heard more sermons from the Gospel of John than the book of Judges, right? Uh, My guess is that many of us have not had an extensive study of the book of Judges. When we look at the book of Judges, we see that God is faithful to his promises, despite broken people. I I had varying titles for the series that I was messing with. I almost went with From Bad to Worse, because that is how the book of Judges goes. Um, I almost decided was about something and a picture of things all unraveling. You know, as a kid, my, my mom would tell me when I saw something that had a thread on it on your shirt and there was like a single thread, don't pull it because the whole thing could pull apart. That's really the book of Judges. God says, don't, and they're like, oh, it's just a little disobedience. And they start pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling. And the next thing, the whole thing falls apart. There's a lot of different ways to look at the book of Judges. We could talk about how there was no king in the land. We could talk about how everyone does what's right in their own eyes. There's a lot of ways we could look at the book of Judges. But what I want to focus on in the book of Judges is how there are still broken people and yet unbroken promises. Broken people and yet God's promises are not broken. It'll be God's promises to make sure that they have some version of a land, but also God's promises to judge and punish and discipline his people for their disobedience. This morning, as we begin this study on the book of Judges, if you're using your pew Bible, I want you to turn to page 234. We're actually going to begin in Joshua chapter 24, which sets the stage for Judges 1 and 2. And we're going to do about three chapters a week. I'm not going to read every verse every week. This week, I'm not going to read the majority of chapter 1. But we are going to look at the majority of chapter 24 and chapter 2 and talk about what's happening in the biblical situation with the intent to understand it, that we might see how we as broken people can also recognize God's unbroken promises and how we can faithfully respond to him. If you don't have a Bible at home and a translation, you can read and understand, and that pew Bible works for you. You are welcome to keep that Bible and read it, follow along with us, either in our reading that's in the bulletin, or if you're not, if you're newer to reading the Bible, let me encourage you to read through the book of Matthew, and then talk with whoever invited you here or one of our pastors about what you're learning from the Bible. The book of Joshua was about the people of Israel taking the land that God had promised to them through Moses. It was originally promised hundreds of years earlier. God is faithful to his promises to Abraham. God fulfills his promises to Moses and Joshua, and the people take most of the land in the book of Joshua. Joshua was a good leader who committed himself to God and to lead 
God's people according to God's directions. And when we arrive here at the end of the book of Joshua, much of the land has been claimed. Things have generally gone pretty well. Joshua's about to die, and he wants to make sure that he passes along the baton of the Christian faith to the next generation that they might also run according to God's direction. He reminds them of God's faithfulness in their history, and he asks them to commit themselves anew to the Lord, which brings us to verse 11. I'm going to read a few verses this morning. I'm going to stop and briefly explain, then we're going to go back into reading. And boys and girls, don't, don't worry. I do have stuff for your four boxes. It's just going to take me a few minutes to kind of get there this morning. So pay attention for what we're going through. But Joshua chapter 24, verse 11. Joshua recounts this history. And you went over the Jordan and came to the Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I want to pause for a minute. I don't know what God's hornet looks like. I just know that I don't like to be stung by hornets. They are not friendly. God is saying to them, all these people were chased out by my hand. It's not that you went in there big and bold and tough and took care of business yourself. No, ahead of you, I sent something to send them out. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Reminder, people of Israel, you are standing in a land that you do not belong in on your own. You're like a turtle on a fence post. You only got there because somebody put you there. You did not climb your way there. You are a turtle on a fence post. Except, I guess in the case of a turtle on a fence post, it's not very good. Okay? In God's case, the people are in a really good situation that they did nothing really to earn being in. Verse 14. So remembering this situation and the faithfulness of God, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your sight to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the rivers or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So Joshua looks at them and he says, hey, historically, we haven't always gotten this right. And you're now in a land that had some other gods that were supposedly taking care of things in that land. But let me remind you, like their gods couldn't protect them from me. So if you want to serve those inferior gods, you're welcome to do so if you don't think serving God is worth it. But let me remind you, you I brought you out of Egypt, and we conquered the land and all of these other gods that were not capable of protecting their people, but you can choose who you want to serve. But there's a good decision here, and Joshua says, as for me and my house, we've made up our mind, we know what we're committed to, but we can't commit for somebody else. You've got to commit yourself. Surrender anew to the Lord. So they say, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. It is the Lord our God who brought us up and our fathers from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did great signs in our sight and preserved us in the way that we went. 
and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we will also serve the Lord, for he is our God. They say, of course, we're going to follow God. What other decision would be reasonable? We're going to follow the Lord. We're not just going to use God to get what we want. We're going to serve God and follow his direction. So Joshua says to them, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. There's an aspect in which Joshua is prophetic here when he says this is what's going to happen in your history. There's an aspect in which Joshua is saying complete faithfulness to God, complete holiness requires something beyond you as people. And there's an aspect in which he is challenging them. When he is saying to them, are you really sure that you're committed? I think the primary angle of this is this angle of challenge. This angle of, are you so sure you're committed? Don't just say you're going to serve God and say it casually. Let me remind you that when you commit to serve the Lord, you commit to serve the Lord, it is a commitment. And when you say God is our God, he is on your behalf and he is faithful to his promises, but he is also faithful to his promises that he's given to us and to previous generations that if you abandon his ways, things don't go well for you. And they say, yeah, we're in. We're in for this. Verse 21. People said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said, then you are witnesses against yourself. You have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. And he said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you. The fact that he has to say that means that there was a reason to say it. That they were struggling with some idols of their own hearts. Idols, that things that they wanted to make most important in life. And he says, put them away and incline and lean upon the Lord your God, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and he put statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and he set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And he said to the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness against us for it has heard the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with God. So they made a monument that was a reminder of their commitment to the Lord to serve God and not serve any of the other idols. Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance, a reminder of God's goodness on their behalf. He sends them away. They get to a land that they did not originally have. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord died being 110 years old. They buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath Terah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gosh. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the land that Jacob brought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money, and it became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died. He was also another leader. They buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. 
all this stuff is happening. You don't need to know where all these are, are on the map, but what you need to recognize is it had been given him. There is this constant reminder at the end of the book of Joshua that they're in a place that they did not earn their own according to the grace and mercy of God, and they serve God as they said they would with that next generation, and then we arrive in the book of Judges. Judges chapter 1. After the death of Joshua... The people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? If you've been reading the book of Joshua, you're like, yes, they're doing it. They're committing to the Lord. They're following him exactly what they said they would do. They're doing it. This is good, 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 good. This is exactly the way things went in the book of Joshua when things went well. They inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answers. The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Awesome, we got an answer. Which of the tribes is it supposed to be? It's supposed to be Judah. Verse 3, and Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Okay, this isn't just like one person. This is like a whole tribe, thousands of people. So God, they go to God and say, God, who's supposed to go take this portion? This little bit that's left, you've given us most of it. This little bit of area of obedience that we need to still do and the ways that we need to follow you, who's supposed to lead us? And God gives them an answer. They know the answer. And they say, all right, God, we're in. And we're going to take some extra insurance with us. God isn't this close enough. I mean, the right people, Judah's going. They're just taking some others with them. They took what God said to do and added a little bit to it. And things from there take a dark turn. They probably at this point said, God, maybe we don't get an A plus on our obedience. But this is like a B plus or an A minus, God, because the people of Judah are going. They're going to the land that they were supposed to go to. They're just taking some extra people, God. Like, we're just going to go do this together, unified. And I think it is highly likely from the trajectory of the book of Judges that God looks at them, and this is that single thread that they begin to pull on and watch the whole tribe not only of judah but the whole nation of israel unravel when they thought that doing it almost god's way was good enough text continues simeon went with them the Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. They defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek, and they found the king, Adonai Bezek, at Bezek, and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And Adonai, this dude fled, but they pursued him, and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Okay, bizarre. And uh, he said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off, used to pick up scraps under my table, as I have done, so the Lord has repaid to me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Okay, and it's kind of a bizarre thing, like no thumbs, no big toes, which I, I have heard before without a big toe, it's like next to impossible to walk. Okay, and I had thumb surgery years ago, and without a thumb, it's really hard to do things for a little while. Okay, it seemed like such a small thing when they took extra insurance and extra people, and then they taunt a king doing to him as he did to others, but probably not following the Lord 
exactly on how to deal with him. And it all unravels. Judges 1 is a hint for us that incomplete obedience is actually disobedience. It's utter disobedience. And it has disastrous consequences unless intervened with by God and bringing us to repentance. We're not going to read the rest of chapter 1 that details all the sociopolitical issues of the tribes. By the end of the chapter, we have God's people not taking the choice land, being forced out in some ways, not doing what they were told to do, and almost every tribe fails and begins to look more and more like the nations that they were supposed to be displacing. They are displaced by the nations. By the way, the book of Judges has got two fairly famous characters. One of them is a little bit stronger than the Incredible Hulk. His name is Samson, okay? And he has some, he has no brain, okay? He is all brawn, no brain, okay? And we're going to look at his life in a little bit, or in a couple of weeks. It also has the character that is a super chicken that is scared of everything. He was like scared of his own shadow, wanted to make sure that he had it all right, and his name is Gideon, okay? But there's all sorts of other fascinating characters in the book of Judges. Next week, we're going to look at a left-handed, deceitful warrior who uses the brokenness of his handicap and disability to conquer a king in a very unusual way. The book of Judges is fascinating, right? There are all sorts of weird stories in the book of Judges. I think there's as much weird in the book of Judges as almost the rest of the Bible. Uh, there's just some fascinating weird stuff that happens in the book of Judges, including the chopping off of toes and thumbs right here in the beginning of the book. Let's skip over to chapter 2, though. As chapter 2 begins, oh, sorry, boys and girls, forgot box one first. Okay, this is a complicated one. Need you paying attention. You're going to draw two targets like what an arrow shoots at. And you're going to put a not equal sign, okay? Remember the equal sign is like, you know what the equal sign is? Two lines, and then you slash through it to mean not equals. Okay, so you're going to draw two targets, one arrow at the exact center, and one arrow just a little off the center, and you're going to show that they're not equal to each other. Hitting the mark that God has called us to is not the same as almost hitting the mark. Almost doing what God wants us to do. That's the way chapter 1 begins. By the time we get to Judges chapter 24, not only are they missing the target by a little bit, by the, by the center by a little bit, they're like missing the whole target. And not only are they missing the whole target, they've turned and started firing on each other. What started as missing by a little bit turns to shooting each other by the end of the book. It all unravels from a little seeming act of disobedience. Incomplete obedience is utter disobedience and has drastic consequences. Chapter 2. Religious perspective on all of the issues in chapter 1. Follow along. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you up from Egypt, brought you into the land. I swore to give your fathers. This is, by the way, a, a recapping before Joshua. Death. I swore to give to your fathers. I will never make, break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? 
So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. And as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of the place Bochum, and they sacrificed there to the name of the Lord. Okay, God says to them, this may or may not, this part before the death of Joshua, Judges isn't always chronological, which messes with our brains a little bit. God says, I promise to give you this land. I'll not break my covenant with you. But you're not supposed to serve idols and abandon me. Remember, don't you remember what you promised in Joshua chapter 24? Like you're not going to serve the idols. And we'd already talked about this before. And you've disobeyed the covenant with me and the promises you made to me. And now because of this, things are not going to go well with you. The people may have recalled at that point that God not only promised the land to his people, but he also promised if they disobeyed, things would go poorly. If you want to look further in the Bible for that, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy chapter 28. Those two passages in particular. God had not just promised them good stuff, but also promised to discipline them if they abandoned him. And these broken people who had broken their promises were going to experience the faithfulness of God to all of God's promises. God is faithful to his promises of grace and justice and discipline. God's promises always come true. Boys and girls, box number two. You're going to draw a symbol from the Bible that is a symbol of God's faithfulness. It's not always understood that way in our culture right now. But God gives a symbol in the book of Genesis that his people should look at as a reminder that he always keeps his promises. And that symbol given by God to his people that he would always keep his promises, his promises of grace, grace and justice, is actually a rainbow. So in box two, you can draw a rainbow, which is a reminder from the Bible. When the Bible uses that, it's a reminder given to us by God that God is faithful to his promises of judgment and mercy. The people get this message from God, and they weep. But they seem to weep not because of their being sorrowful over their sin. It's like, oh, we got caught. Teenagers in the room, there's been times that you're like, man, I'm really, really sorry, mom and dad. And the reason you're really, really sorry is because you got caught. And you think if you say, I'm really, really sorry, then your parents are going to be like, oh, well, they, they regret it. No, the only reason you regret it and you're telling your parents you're sorry is because you got caught, not because you're like, oh, that was really, really wrong. It's like, no, I don't like the consequences it's about to come my way, so I'm really, really sorry. And that's exactly what the people of Israel do, exactly what adults today do, exactly what boys and girls do. In many cases, instead of being sorry we actually did it, we're sorry we got caught doing it, and it's going to hurt our life in some way. And that seems to be what's going on, I think, at the end of Judges chapter 2, verse 5. They make a sacrifice, but as we find out in 1 Samuel, obedience is better than sacrifice. They don't change their ways. They're just like, ooh, disobedience hurts. We don't like the consequences. We're going to cry because of that, but we're not going to cry because we did it. We're going to cry because it hurts when we do it. Verse 6, when Joshua dismissed the people, this is a recounting of Joshua's death from the book of Judges' perspective. One minor difference we're going to get to. Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel, went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, and who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at an age of 110. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gosh. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. 
And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that the Lord had done. That little phrase, another generation arises that does not know the Lord. That is an ominous warning. Now, there's a couple of different ways to take that warning, and we're going to look at it at the end when I give you a bunch of application points. For those of you using your bulletin, you're like, man, we are like 15 to 20 minutes in, Pastor Jason, and you've given us one of our seven points. Don't worry, I'm going to give them rapid fire at the very end. Boys and girls, you get your boxes spaced out. Adults, you get yours all at the end pretty much, okay? When the Old Testament uses the concept here in verse 10 of knowledge and knowing like we see in verse 10, it doesn't simply mean intellectual knowledge. Not knowing the Lord here doesn't mean that they hadn't heard God's career statistics. They hadn't heard about what God had done. That they didn't know their national history and how God had made them a great nation. It wasn't probably that. Whether or not the people had an intellectual knowledge and could pass a national history quiz on God's work in their country's heritage wasn't the primary issue. The primary issue is the concept of knowing in the Hebrew, and the word here actually reflects relationship. When the Bible talks about knowing the Lord, it doesn't just mean, hey, three-part, like the, whole, the Trinity. It doesn't mean God the Creator. It doesn't mean that they didn't know that God had brought them out of Egypt. It means relationally. The word know used here is also the word used of a husband and a wife knowing each other intimately and relationally. This new generation might not have known intellectually, but they certainly lacked the close relationship with God that had marked previous generations and the leaders like Joshua. There's now a generation with a spiritual amnesia largely ignoring the Lord, and we're going to see that spiritual amnesia quickly leads to idolatry. When we forget spiritually and cease to know relationally the Lord, and we are often headed down the path of idolatry. Spiritual forgetfulness of our relationship with the Lord and what he has done in our lives often leads quickly to idolatry. And that's what we have starting in verse 11. The people of Israel did what was evil. So I'm going to just read no break for a minute. All that generation were gathered to their fathers. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals, the gods of the land that were supposed to be bringing produce and rain. Okay? They abandoned the Lord the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroths. All right, the Ashtaroth is the gods of fertility, um, often that were worshipped through sexual promiscuity. They began serving those other gods. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Remember in Joshua 24, Joshua says, you didn't conquer the land, I sent the hornet in front of you, and it wiped out the people. Now, whenever they go out to battle, God has sent his hornet against them. 
God has turned on them as their hearts have turned from him. He is faithful to his promises. But his promises are not just all goes well with you no matter what you do. The Bible is an incredible story of the graciousness and mercy of God for those that turn to him, that he brings into a relationship with him. And it is an incredible story of justice and punishment upon those that reject him. The Bible is good news and bad news because God is faithful to his promises to give gracious mercy and faithful to his promises to bring justice upon those who reject his rightful rule and reign in their life. So we see that they've broken their promises, but God doesn't break his promises. What began with them thinking we followed God pretty close, we're just adding a little bit has them in a terrible situation, and there's no genuine repentance described. They were in a mess. They had no one to blame themselves but, to, but themselves to blame for. They didn't turn and repent. They just cried out in pain. And yet God does not wipe them out because he keeps his promises to Abraham. We arrive at verse 16, where we see the spiraling cycle of disobedience. Here's the book of Judges in a nutshell. The Lord raised up Judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raises up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back. And were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And that is the book of Judges. God raises up a judge. He delivers them temporarily from the the physical situation that they're in. Sometimes there's a little bit of spiritual interest in the things of the Lord. Things go reasonably well while a judge is on hand, and then that judge dies, and the next generation is like, oh, nah, God, forget him. We're doing our own thing. And it's not just a cycle. It's not just a wheel. It is an ever-descending spiral of disobedience where things start not terrible and end absolutely terrible. When you read the end of the book of Judges, you're like, wow, this is terrible. When we get there in six or seven, eight weeks, you're going to be like, this is in the Bible? Yes, this is in the Bible. It is a way to show us that close enough by our own record is not what God calls faithfulness. And incomplete obedience has drastic consequences unless shorts, unless interrupted by the marvelous grace of God bringing us to repentance. Instead of being led by Moses and Joshua, the leaders get worse and worse throughout the book. By the time we get to Samson, though incredibly strong, he is not a man of God. The nation that began with adding a little to God's direction, thinking they might have been getting a B plus or an A minus by the end of the book, looks even worse than the heathen nations all around them. Instead of being a people united in the pursuit of holiness and love towards God and one another, they're fighting with each other. The rest of the book unpacks the ways in which sinful, broken people do not follow the Lord, and yet how God keeps his promises. There are no people exempt, us today included, from God's promises of grace or justice and justice. Either we follow God in his ways, experiencing delight in him forever, or experience his just punishment against our sin. All right, 
five quick things of application, including some stuff for boys and girls. Box number, or box number three, boys and girls, I want you to draw some adults talking about Jesus to younger children. We must diligently disciple the next generation. There arose a generation. Well, how did there arise a generation? Well, it's not like they were just like test tube babies that popped onto the scene. There arose a generation who did not know the Lord, which means there was a generation who did not aid them in walking with the Lord. This is a warning from chapter 2, verse 10. The next generation didn't know the Lord. It's possible that this is just a simple violation of them teaching the things of the Lord. This is certainly a violation of Deuteronomy 6, which they would repeat all the time, but did not follow as the people of God, as they were to train wherever they went the next generation in the things of the Lord, passing down the things of the faith. In the relay race of the Christian faith, one generation dropped the baton. Instead of handing it off well and has a disastrous impact on the future generations in the book of Judges and all of society, and the same thing can be true today. One pastor this week said God has no grandchildren. He only has children. Either we relate to him personally or we don't relate to him at all. Parents, grandparents, church, let's make sure that the next generation has a personal walk with the Lord. Our church has a rich history. Next year, we're going to celebrate 70 years of history, and some of you have been here for almost all of that. You've walked with the Lord. You've served on every committee that we've ever invented, but you still must remain faithful and not just say, what's in it for me, but how can the future generations walk with the Lord? And I'm thankful for the ways that our church does that. I'm thankful the ways that our church supports a preschool ministry director in addition to a day school educational staff that teaches them the things of the Lord and learns educational things, that we want to pass along the things of the faith by having a children's director, and we support children going to camp, and that tomorrow, Pastor Jacob and our youth with 25 students, the biggest group that I recall in my 10 plus year, 10 years here, are going to camp tomorrow. We try, and I want to continue to encourage you to pass along the things of the faith to the next generation. We want to continue to invest in them financially and prayerfully and serving. So after the service, I want to encourage you, find a prayer bracelet on a table. We got those prayer bracelets, is that correct, Jacob? After the service, the prayer team has a bracelet that you can grab. I want to encourage all of you, I think there's two per participant in camp that will be out there at the table. Grab a bracelet, wear it throughout the week, put it somewhere if you're not wearing it. That is a reminder for you to pray for that individual to personally walk with the Lord. But by the way, not only is this a church thing, the problem in Deuteronomy 6 was not words given to the church, it was words given to parents. Parents, you are the primary disciple maker intended by God for the life of your children. Do not count upon Pastor Jacob, Miss Carol Stewart, or the church to train your kids in the things of the Lord. You are the one intended by God to be the first arm of disciple making the next generation. You are the one God intends to help the next generation Know the things of the Lord. Second point, counterpoint to point one, though. Each generation must personally choose to follow the Lord. Some of you as parents at this point are thinking, Pastor, I tried, but my kid's not walking with Jesus. I had them in church. We sat around the table. I prayed for them faithfully, and they're not making good spiritual or life decisions. Is it all my fault? No, it's not your fault. 
Could you have been better? Yeah, probably so. But is it all your fault? No. Each generation must personally follow the Lord. You cannot follow the Lord on behalf of your children or your grandchildren. You can pray for them to do it. You can point them to the Lord, but you cannot personally relate to the Lord on their behalf for them. They must choose to follow the Lord according to the Spirit's direction. So for those of you that are struggling with guilt, I want to release you of that guilt. I don't want to release you of the burden to pray for them, to personally walk with the Lord, but I want to release you from the guilt as if it is all your fault or as if it's because you just didn't do something right. Thank God that we don't have to be perfect parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, or church to have people walk with him. It is by his spirit that he draws them in, helps them walk. All right. Third, sin might seem insignificant, but it leads to slavery. It seemed like such a little thing in chapter 1, but it quickly leads to slavery. When you start, what you start by trying to enjoy that is out of bounds according to God eventually becomes your master. If you're not putting sin to death, it is putting you to death. This is a big theme of Judges. We'll see it more as we go. What began as not putting away the idols of the land eventually leads to slavery to those idols. The same thing happens in our world today. It's seen most vividly in illegal drugs and addictive substances that promise satisfaction and delight but never satisfy, always coming with a cost. But it's also true of anything we make ultimate in life. You see, an idol isn't just a statue. It is anything you make ultimate in life. Whether that is money, power, or prestige, or approval of others, if you're not putting those things to death and you're only trying to contain them, they will likely eventually control you. Don't put up with what might seem like close enough if it's not what God has called you to do correctly. Completely follow the Lord. Repent of where you have not. Sin isn't simply an action. It has its own power unless we turn to the Lord, trusting the Lord and turning from sin. Fourthly, or fourth application point here, God is faithful to his promises to bless those that seek him and punish those that reject him. That is a theme of Judges that we see throughout the pages of the Bible. People are broken then and now. But just as God would fulfill his promises to Abraham and Moses and Joshua and that generation, he continues to fulfill his promises today. He is faithful to his promises. He's faithful to his promises to judge. He's faithful to his promises to give and show his mercy. And boys and girls, box four. Draw a picture of the cross. Because even the book of Judges and all of the brokenness in it points to the cross. Because Jesus is our ultimate deliverer, and as an act of his gracious justice, God sends a deliverer for those who turn to him. Jesus is the ultimate deliverer that the book of Judges looks towards, who is a perfect deliverer, who does not simply deliver from physical issues but delivers spiritually for those that turn and trust in God who delivers from spiritual oppression for those that turn and trust in Christ Jesus is the ultimate deliverer who is absorbing the just punishment of God against sin that we deserve for our sin that we might receive the mercy of God the ultimate deliverer is Jesus who 
is a representation of the justice and mercy of God, and the book of Judges points to him, and we celebrate him. So if I can talk or pray with you in the back, I'll be available during this time. I want to encourage you, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, don't manage sin. Turn to Christ as Savior. If you've been meddling with sin as a believer, quit playing with it. Don't just be sorrowful over the consequences of it. Be sorrowful of the way in which it breaks what God intended for you and turn to Him. Don't let it all unravel. Learn by someone else's mistakes, not through your own. And do your best to commit another generation to the things of the Lord as you walk with God yourself. Praying for others, walking before the Lord as you should. Let's rise, stand, and sing.